you have your Bible this morning, please open with me to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55 this morning. If you're a child and you're listening to the sermon this morning, you could listen for two words. The word satisfied and the word forgiven. Satisfied and the word forgiven. Isaiah 55, we will read the entirety of this passage together this morning. Isaiah 55, and the word of the Lord says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is Isaiah 55. The gospel according to Isaiah. In many ways, that would be a fitting title for this section of the book of Isaiah. If you read the Old Testament, you wonder maybe perhaps where is the gospel in the Old Testament? Where is the good news of salvation in the prior section of our Bibles? Where is the good news of Christ? And many have labeled this section of the scripture the gospel according to Isaiah. Because in many ways it does allude to this glorious message. The message of the gospel. If you think about Isaiah 53, it is the accomplishment of the servant of the Lord. The Messiah who would suffer and die on behalf of the sins of his people. You have this glorious atonement that's given in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 54 displays the glorious blessings of the salvation that's accomplished in Isaiah 53. 
the servant, Jesus Christ, accomplishes salvation for his people. He dies. He sheds his blood for them. Isaiah 54, it guarantees the secure abundance. The final question would be this. What is the response that is needed? What would be the response to the message of the gospel? And Isaiah 55 answers that question. This chapter is a summons. There are two summons in this chapter that answer that question. What would be the response of those who hear of this glorious salvation in Isaiah? What would God desire of them? And that question is applicable to us this morning. What would God desire of us? Perhaps you're in here and you've never heard this message this morning. The fact that salvation is in Christ alone. What would God desire from you? Or you're a believer. The necessity to hear and respond to the gospel is not something that goes away after you repent and turn from your sins. We affirm that as you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven of all of your sins. You can find true satisfaction in him alone. And yet that call is necessary each day. We affirm that you're justified, you're declared righteous in a single moment, and yet over and over and over again in your life, you return to this truth, the truth of the good news of Christ, that you can be fully satisfied in him and that you can have all of your sins forgiven. That is not something that goes away the moment you are converted. And so this morning, there are two summons that are in this passage. And the first one is in verses one through five, and it's this summons to come And be satisfied. To come and have all of your desires met in Christ. Have your deepest need satisfied. And a second summons, which is verse 6 through 13. And that summons is this to return and be forgiven. These two summons weave together in this passage. To come and be satisfied. To return and be forgiven. And both are necessary. And so this morning... Let's examine these summons. We'll examine what we are summoned to. What is it that we are summoned to in these passages? Whereby we receive satisfaction. Whereby we receive forgiveness. Why is it that many do not respond? Why is it that many hear this summons and they don't respond? They do not come. They do not return. And then thirdly, why we should come. So two summons this morning and we'll look at the nature of the summons objections to the summons, and a motivation to respond to these summons. Let's look at this first summons, and it occurs here in verses 1 through 5, and that is to come and be satisfied. Come and be satisfied. Look at verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The imagery in this passage is very unique. It's almost as if someone is being invited to a feast. A feast that's been laid out before somebody. A feast that has dramatic amounts of food. Copious amounts of milk and wine and and water and, and food that will satisfy. It's this dramatic invitation to come and find your satisfaction. But think about how this invitation is delivered. It's not delivered in a very casual manner at all. You notice that even verse 1 is very repetitive. The word come occurs four times. It's as if the person is in a crowded market with many people beckoning or crying for someone's attention. And this summons is given very urgently. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk. The urgency of this summons implies the importance of responding to the summons. 
Come, everyone who thirsts. And this summons is one that goes out to everyone. Even the imagery here that's given is applicable to everyone. There's no one in this room this morning who has never experienced thirst, who does not experience hunger. This summons comes to you, that you would respond. It's a summons that goes out to all the world. Certainly in this passage, it's directed toward the nation of Israel to respond and return to their God. But yet this summons goes beyond even that nation to all in every nation to come and return to the Lord. Now, what is the person invited to? Are they invited primarily to food and drink? Well, look at verse 3. And this word come occurs again, and it's very clear what this imagery implies to or refers to. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. God is beckoning the nation to himself. He's not beckoning them to something that he gives. Many people would come to God for the sake of something else. Maybe God would give me something or I would experience this if I come to God. But they're not really coming for the person himself. And God beckons them. Here even in this verse, the passage is first person. It's as if God himself is directly beckoning this nation to come to him. Isaiah's voice is totally lost in this message. God says, come to me. Come to me. Buy wine and milk. Buy and eat. God is speaking directly to this people. Now think about what it means then to deny this invitation. To deny the invitation to come and eat, to come and buy, is a denial of God himself. It's not so much a denial of something that God offers in as much as you're denying the person of God himself. I'm sure everyone in here has had the experience of receiving an invitation to something. Maybe it was something that you did not want to attend. It's a very awkward process to think of what are the excuses you could give to not attend something to which you were invited. You, perhaps in your mind, think of all these objections. Some of them may be legitimate, some of them may not be very legitimate. But you will try in every way to think of an objection that you can give whereby you don't have to come. And what that indicates really is that you don't desire to come. But very few people will use this as their objection. I don't want to come because I don't want to be with you. It's not a objection that's given very often. Perhaps the person's invited to a wedding and they would say, no, I'm not coming because I don't want to be with you on this happiest day of your life. It's not an objection that is often given. And yet, as one denies this invitation, we must understand that this invitation is one where they are invited to God. To say no to come and buy, to say no to come and eat, is to say, God, I don't want you. You are not good enough. There is something better. You can think of the opposite of that image, and that is there are invitations that we receive where there may be legitimate objections to us coming, and we will move mountains to try and be there. There's some invitation that's given to you, and you would do everything in your power to be there. And that is the image of this passage. This invitation is so grand and it is so glorious that the people who would receive it would move everything out of their life to come and respond. Now, why is it that people refuse this invitation? Perhaps as we sit on this side of the cross, as those who have been redeemed from our sins, we wonder why is it that people refuse this 
invitation? How is it that some would say, I don't want God? What were the objections that they would give? And there are actually two objections that are even listed in this passage. The first objection is here in verse 1. What is that objection that's given in verse 1? Look with me at the text. It says this. He who has no money. It's as if the invitation goes out and someone responds. And this is the objection that they give. Well, I can't come because I can't purchase my seat at the table. I may have been invited. I may even desire to be there. But I am unable because I am not worthy. Because I don't have enough money. I haven't labored hard enough. Perhaps I spent it in other ways. I do not have enough to get me to the seat of the table. Think about the example earlier given of being invited to a wedding. Perhaps you've been invited to an out-of-state wedding. And the moment you receive the invitation, the first place your mind goes is, how much is it going to cost me to be there? You start calculating the, the cost of a plane ticket or hotel Perhaps you're in the wedding and they want you to, you know, purchase some garment because you're supposed to look like everyone else in the wedding. So you start putting all these things together and the price of being at the wedding starts going up very significantly. When you do that, it's, it's, you're saying, you know, I desire to be there. There's an invitation that's given to me, but I am unable. It's just too much. There's, there are too many expenses that I have to make. You know, that objection, the person is really saying, I have the right to be there, but I am unable because I can't afford it. This objection, when God says, come, everyone who thirsts, and someone says, well, I don't have enough money. What they are affirming is this, that although they have been invited, they don't have the ability to put themselves at the table. In essence, that objection is stating, God, you have invited me to come to you, and yet I do not have the ability to be there. They are affirming that they, in some way, could make themselves come. They are affirming that they have the ability to purchase their seat at the table. Do you see how this objection translates to an unbeliever? To someone who is outside of Christ. Someone who hears this glorious message. The message that says, come and be satisfied. And what do they respond? Well, I don't have enough money. I can't come. Surely I must contribute something to being there. There must be something that I could do whereby I could get enough money to come. If we think about this in the context of salvation. Salvation which is offered to us as a gift. To something we cannot purchase. Something we cannot work for. Something you can labor as long as you desire. But you will never acquire enough money. You think about that objection, it is this objection that I am not able to earn my salvation. Think of your coworker who may be a good moral person, who maybe believes in the existence of a God. They wouldn't put a name on that being, but they just believe that God just wants a little bit more. Their perception of what we do in this building is some perception of you are trying to earn some status before God. In other words, if you were to do more and more and more, you could come. It is exactly the opposite of this call. Come, he who has no money. Or here, without money. In other words, without even counting it up. Don't consider the cost. The cost has already been secured. It's interesting in this passage, he still uses the language of purchasing something. He says, come, buy and eat. 
but you don't have money. It's as if the cost has already been paid. You just have to show up. And for us who are in Christ, we know how that cost has been paid. That cost has been paid through the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Your neighbor thinks that they are not the type of person that God wants. That they are not good enough. And God beckons them to come. You are not worthy. Perhaps as a Christian, you've been a Christian for many years. So long that you may be even deceived into thinking you have purchased your right at the table. You live your life and there's really no sense of gratitude whatsoever for this invitation being given to you. Your children go to a Christian school. They're pretty well behaved. Your life is in order. There's not real significant family tension in your family. You think, man, I purchased my right at this table. Look at the blessings of my life. And you may never vocalize that thought. That thought may never come out of your mouth. And yet you live your life with no sense of gratitude for this gift. With no sense of compassion for those who have not come. You see, brother and sister in Christ, this call to come without money and without price is one that we respond to every day. For an unbeliever, you have no money. Come to God. And believer, be reminded this morning, you had no money and you came through Christ. This second objection, uh, this first objection leads to another objection. If you are offered something is free, something that is free, what is your typical response? Well, it's free, but is it legit? Does it actually satisfy? If the deal's too good, it's too good to be true. That's the way our mind typically works when things are offered to us that are of no cost to us. Or even there may be some cost, but the cost is so minimal, well then it, it can't actually be real. There's sort of this skeptical attitude. And that's sort of the second objection that occurs in this passage. Look at me at verse 2. Here notice he's addressing a different category of people. These aren't people who know that they have no money. He says verse 2 Why do you spend your money? He's almost speaking to a different category of people. He says, you spend your money on something else that won't satisfy. You see, the second objection, is it free? Second objection, does it satisfy? Someone says, well, I won't come, not because I don't understand that it's a free offer, but I don't come because I don't think it will really satisfy. There is something better in this world out there for me than to come to Christ. And that's this objection here. Why do you spend your money? It's implied here in the text that if someone is spending their money for something else that won't satisfy, they must truly believe that coming to God will not satisfy. And you see just how applicable this is to our world. This world is full of dissatisfied people, but yet people who will not come, people who will not buy and eat, People who will not come to God because they truly believe that there is something else in this world that will afford them the satisfaction that God offers. And what does God say to that person? What does he say to encourage them to come? Look with me at the text. You are spending your money for that which is not bread. You are laboring for what cannot satisfy. To the person who says there is something else out there that is better that will keep me from coming. 
I'll go to that to find satisfaction. I won't go to God. To that person, God says, you are purchasing rotten food. You are purchasing spoiled food. You are purchasing food that cannot satisfy. It's as if that person has this hunger and they're trying to satisfy that hunger by placing a piece of gum into their mouth. They can chew and they can chew and they can chew and their hunger will never be satisfied. God says to that person, come to me and you will be satisfied. This world is full of these dissatisfied people. People who think that if their children excel in sport or in music or in dance or in academics or in some means vicariously that brings satisfaction to them. A satisfaction that will satisfy. And they heap inordinate amounts of pressure on their child to fulfill those expectations because they desire to be satisfied through their children. It's full of people who are so devoted to their careers that they put anything else of value aside because if some way that career could bring them this level of satisfaction. It's full of teenagers today who are being bombarded by all the worldly pleasures that the world has to offer, saying these things will satisfy. It's full of people who are pursuing some status in their local community, some status of significance, thinking it will satisfy. And God says to that person, why? Why would you spend your labor for what does not satisfy? God says to that person, why are you purchasing bread that will not fill you? He beckons that person to come to Christ and be truly satisfied. Perhaps you're a believer this morning and your temptation isn't necessarily saying God isn't enough. You would never say that with your words. But yet every single time you are tempted and you do sin, you are saying God is not enough. What God has given me isn't quite good enough. I would rather go to something else. Dear Christian parent, do you realize that your child will have one of these objections? Your child who you're raising in your home will think to themselves, I could earn my place at this table. Or your child may think to themselves as they grow up in your home, parent, what you are offering through the, the scriptures, what the Bible is calling us to, it's not good enough. There's something else. These are the objections of our children, but parent also consider these were your objections. This was the reason you declined to come. You were hesitant to come because you thought in some way you had to purchase it prior to coming. Or perhaps you thought in some way there was something else that's out there in this world and you were seeking that for perhaps even a long period of time. And dear brother and sister in Christ, these were your objections and yet God in his mercy invited you to come and you saw its value. You esteemed what God offered you to as glorious and you came. And you experienced satisfaction in God. And now you are tempted every day to leave that satisfaction behind and go to something in this world. It could be something that your children could bring to you. It could be some thing that you see in this world that you desire to have for yourself. It could be anything in this world that you could look to and hope that in some way that thing would satisfy you. And dear Christian, do not spend your labor for what won't satisfy. Come to God and be satisfied. 
Well, it perhaps raises this next question that would be, what is it about God that is so satisfactory? If God says, come to me and be satisfied, how could I be satisfied by coming? What does God offer? And the answer in this passage really is God himself. God is not offering some blessing outside of himself in so much as he's offering himself. Look with me at the text, verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And notice the promise that's given. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. It's a relational promise. If you come to me, I'm going to have a covenant with you. I will have a certain relationship with you. Now, this language of everlasting covenant is in the previous passage that we looked at last week. And that's the phrase covenant of peace. It's this promise that's given to the nation that one day God will make a covenant with them that will have particular blessings. It will have a relational blessing. The nation will relate to God. He will not desert them. He will forgive them. And it will also bring physical blessing later and the inheritance that is given to them. God says to them, if you come to me, I will give this to you. This unique relationship with myself. A relationship that secures a future inheritance. Now, what would be the purpose that God would give to us? If, if we experience this special relationship with God, what would be the point of that relationship? And he answers that in verses 4 and 5. He says, behold, I made him. And he's referring to David. He's just mentioned David at the end of verse 3. He says, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. He gives this example for David's life. David was elevated to the status of king in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. And because of that, he was a blessing to the nations. In fact, that's God's entire purpose with why he had a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. He had this relationship so that Israel would display God's glory to the nations. And as they come to him, verse 5, it says, Nations that do not know them will come to them because he has glorified this nation. His point being, Israel will fulfill God's purpose for them if they come. Now, for a Christian who perhaps is not a member of the nation of Israel... If you come to God, God gives you a purpose. As you relate to him, as you have this relationship to him, you have a particular purpose. And what is that purpose? In many ways, it's similar to the purpose that's mentioned here in verse 5. That nations, Gentiles, those who do not know God would come to them and they would begin to know of God. It's that their life is meant to be a blessing to those around him. Who are outside of Christ. That is the purpose that God has given the nation. So perhaps you're a Christian this morning. And you have a very dissatisfied life. You live a life. And your life. And you wonder. Where is satisfaction for me? You think of satisfaction in terms of some material blessing. That you do not currently possess. Some relationship that you don't have. Or has been fractured. You, you think of some physical thing. On this earth. You are dissatisfied. Where would you find satisfaction? Well, in verse 5, it's very clear that satisfaction comes as a person fulfills the purpose that God has given them. So, Christian, consider how is your fulfillment of the mission that you have been given going? Are you dissatisfied? Could it possibly be because you are not fulfilling the purpose of the relationship that you have with God? Namely, to glorify Him. And to enjoy him. Well. 
You have every reason to be satisfied in God. You have a new relationship. You have a new purpose. You come without money, without purchase. How is it that such an extravagant offer could be given to such a sinful and rebellious nation? Why would Israel be given this dramatic opportunity to come and be satisfied? Hadn't they sinned numerous times? They had broken their relationship with God. They had committed numerous acts of idolatry. How is it that this nation could be afforded this summons to come and be satisfied? Well, the second summons answers that dilemma. And it occurs in verses 6 through 13. And that is to return and be forgiven. Do you see how these two summons work together? There are many people who come to God who perhaps want satisfaction in this world. And yet they're unwilling to give up some part of their life. They're unwilling to return and repent. And because they're unwilling, they will not be forgiven. Or others who come and they want forgiveness with God. They believe that God is holy, that he will judge their sin, and they are afraid of spending an eternity away from him. And so they come to God and they want forgiveness, but they don't really desire satisfaction. They don't really desire to have all their needs met in their relationship with God. And God says both things to that person. You must come and be satisfied, and you must return, and you will be forgiven. You see, in your relationship with God, you have your sins forgiven and your needs satisfied. And that is the second summons, to return and be forgiven. And again, it's a summons that's given very urgently. Look with me at the text, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. In other words, you don't have to go very far. Come immediately. The world is full of people who are delaying and delaying and delaying their response to this summons. To seek the Lord and to return to him. And they are delaying because they feel they have more time. And God says, come immediately. Seek him while he may be found. Implying there is a time when the call to seek will no longer go forward. The call to respond will not be issued. Come and you will be abundantly forgiven. Verse 7, you, the Lord will have compassion upon you. Why is it that someone would not come to Christ and be forgiven? Well, the fact that, that there even is an objection to this call to come and be forgiven, to seek to return, to experience forgiveness, is indicated by the fact that there are three encouragements given to someone to come and be forgiven. You, if you look at the text, they're denoted by the word for. So verse 8 and 9, for is really this explanatory word. It explains why someone should return to the Lord. Come because. Come for, verse 8 9, my thoughts are not your thoughts. The 8 and 9 are set in parallel. There's a second reason that's given again in verse 10. Notice how it begins. For, as the rain, so there's another, and it proceeds on, and there's another reason given. And then verse 12 and 13, again, a third reason to come and be forgiven, to return to the Lord and find forgiveness. These three encouragements are given because it's implied that someone would have an objection to coming and finding forgiveness. What is the objection that many have to finding forgiveness in the Lord? Well, in this passage, it's the thought, I am not worthy of being forgiven. It's the exact opposite of what was mentioned earlier. I haven't done enough 
Rather than saying, I can't come to God because I haven't done enough, someone is saying, I can't come to God because I have done too much. They look back on their life and they think, I have done too many sinful deeds for the Lord to forgive me. Now, this is the thought of many people. There are people in this world who are hesitant to return to the Lord, to repent of their sins and come to Christ because they think they are too sinful. Indeed, many Christians even hesitate to return to the Lord and repent of their sin because in their mind, they view themselves as too sinful. And God gives them three encouragements to repent and return to him. And these encouragements are for us this morning. When we sin, we break God's will to come and return and be forgiven. And the first one is in verse 8 9, and it's this. It's that God's forgiveness is greater than ours. Look with me at these verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Think about what this verse is saying. It's saying that God's ways are greater than our ways. Perhaps you've heard this verse mentioned to someone or given to someone who's undergoing some significant trial in their life. Encouragement in the trial is that God's ways are beyond our ways and, and we don't fully understand what God's doing in our life right now, but they're greater than our plans. So, so you can trust him. And that is certainly true. It's undeniable that God's ways are far beyond our ways. And in times of trial, you can trust him, even if you don't understand what's going on. But that is not the primary reason that this phrase occurs here in this particular passage. This statement about God's ways being higher than our ways are given in the context of forgiveness. It's as if someone says in response to this summons to return to the Lord and be forgiven, they say, well, well, God couldn't possibly forgive me. There's no way God should afford forgiveness to a sinner like me. I've just done too much. And God says to that person, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Think with me about a child for a moment this morning. Perhaps you're a child. When you sin and do something wrong, do you want to come to your parents and tell them that you've done wrong? Perhaps you've done the same thing that you did the last week. And your parents told you not to do something and you don't really want to come. The thing that makes you hesitate is a fear of, well, I've already done this. Like, how could I possibly come to my parent and confess this and apologize if I already did this before? But think about you as a parent. If your child comes to you and they are repentant over their wrong, if you told them to do something and they are apologetic, they understand they did something wrong and they come to you and they want to confess it to you, would you forgive them? You probably would. But consider this morning, God's forgiveness is so far above that. We think to ourselves, God, I did the same sin last week and I confessed it to you in prayer. And now I've done it again. How could I come to you? Or maybe you've made this commitment in your mind, God, I sinned and I never want to do this again. And then the following day, you do the same thing. You say something unkind to someone else. Your pride manifests itself in the way you think about a person. Sinful thoughts come to your mind over and over again. And you think, God, I have sinned in this way over and over and over again. This could be the same sin that you've been struggling with for year after year. 
And God says to you, my forgiveness is so far beyond your earthly understanding of forgiveness. He is inviting you to return to him and have all of your sins pardoned. So Christian, please return and repent of your sin and you will be forgiven. A second encouragement here though is in verse 10. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. There's this long language given about God's sustaining of his creation. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Again, this passage is often used when we speak about the nature of God's word. I think God's word is sufficient. It accomplishes its purpose. And certainly that is a true conclusion to come to. But again, place that conclusion in this context. This context is talking about God's forgiveness. And he says, you can trust my word. As surely as on your drive home this this morning or this afternoon, you look out and you see how the hills have been turned green because of the rain that has come. As sure as that happens, your sins will be forgiven because God's word has said so. You have every reason to trust God's word because of what you see outside in creation. And if that is true, when God says to you, return and I will abundantly pardon, he assures you That if you have returned, you have been abundantly pardoned. Again, think of a child. Maybe you are a child this morning. Or maybe this is your struggle even as an adult. This is the struggle of many adults who grew up in Christian homes. And that is the struggle of, have I truly been forgiven? There are many Christians, many Christians, who struggle with the assurance of their salvation. They wonder Have I been forgiven? Oftentimes that thought comes to them after they have committed a sin. Maybe it's a particular sin that they struggle to not commit. And they wonder, has God really forgiven me? Have my sins actually been covered by the blood of Christ? Maybe you're a young child this morning and you're a very fearful child. Every night before you go to bed, you pray, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. I don't want to be condemned to hell. It's a struggle perhaps that many, many children struggle with who grow up in a Christian home. Well, dear child or dear brother and sister in Christ or dear saint who struggles with this truth, am I assured of my forgiveness? As surely as you see the rain watering these hills and the grass turning green, as sure as that will always happen, When rain comes and the sun shines, these hills will turn green. Flowers will grow and sprout. As surely as that is, if you have repented of your sins, God has forgiven you. You have every reason to rest in that forgiveness. There's a final encouragement to return to the Lord and experience this forgiveness. And it's in verse 12 and 13. For... You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Here is promised the two things that people in this world often desire the most. 
What do people in this world desire the most? What would they give all of their money for? Joy and peace. People out in this world are searching for this thing, joy. People of this world desire this more than anything else, that this world will be at peace and that their life would be at peace. And God promises to you as a sinner, to you as a brother and sister in Christ, to us as fellow Christians, if we return to him and we have our sins forgiven, you experience blessing, you experience the blessings of joy and peace. These blessings are ones that are particularly comforting one to one who is struggling with the misery of their own sinfulness. Think of what happens to you when you sin. When you sin and you know you have sinned and you know you have done wrong, do you have true joy? Do you walk around and you are you at peace? Now, oftentimes when we sin, we have the exact opposite. We're very disgruntled people. Or people who are very quick to not be at peace with others. Maybe we lash out at a family member. Or someone says something to us. Or we go around and our shoulders are drooped all the time. Because there's this knowledge of my sin hasn't been forgiven. And God says to that person. Although you are in misery currently. If you return. I will forgive. My forgiveness is greater than you can understand. If you return. You can be assured that your forgiveness is guaranteed. And if you return, you will have joy and peace. You have the two things that you desire more than anything in this world. Joy because your standing with God is secure. Peace because Christ has reconciled you to God. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And so this morning, you have every encouragement to return to the Lord and be forgiven. Yet also in this passage, verse 13, there's this dramatic reversal that takes place. Look with me at verse 13. Instead of the thorn will come up cypress. Instead of the briar will come up the myrtle. There is this abundant promise that's given to God's people that a reversal will take place. Not just in their lives, but in this world. That as a result of the forgiveness and the restoration that God has accomplished through salvation, restoration will come. It will come to individuals and it will come to this world. This world is broken and fallen. Many in this world are not having joy and many are not at peace. And God promises to these people, if you return to the Lord, these things will come to fruition. This morning, Christian, please consider this summons. You are summoned to come to the Lord and be satisfied. You are summoned to return to him and be forgiven. In no strange providence, the thing we're about to do this morning is to observe the Lord's table. The imagery of eating and drinking is before us and will be before us. And in many ways, that is imagery that Jesus Christ himself uses of himself. Think about the New Testament, what Jesus says. Jesus says, come to me and you will never thirst again. Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood and you will never be thirsty or hungry again. You have every reason to be satisfied in Christ, and you have every reason to be assured that your forgiveness is in Christ. And so this morning, as we corporately take part of this table, remember that you can be satisfied in Christ. 
and that in him alone you may find the forgiveness of your sins. Let's bow for prayer.